0: The Lutheran Hour, bringing Christ to the nations. Why is there a rotting log inside a greenhouse? An unusual art project inspires Dr. Michael Ziegler's thoughts about life as God intended it.
1: When you and I talk about life, what we're talking about is not yet true life. It's only mortal life. It's a glimpse of life. It's life curated and enclosed by death.
0: And Dr. Tim Seleska shows how the ancient book of Ecclesiastes is relevant to our day. He
2: describes a world that is enigmatic, discordant, and contradictory. It is the
0: world in which we live. That's all today on The Lutheran Hour. Hi, this is Mark Eisher. Thanks for making this program part of your day, and thank you for your faithful support. Your gifts and prayers help the Lutheran Hour bring Christ to the nations and the nations to the church. Learn more at LutheranHour.org. Now here's our speaker, Dr. Michael Ziegler.
1: Once upon a time there was a tree. A tree preserved like Sleeping Beauty inside a large greenhouse. It was a dead tree. A tree trunk, a trunk that once belonged to a flourishing western hemlock a tree that had fallen over in the forest long ago. An artist named Mark Dion had a vision. He and his team dragged the dead tree out of the forest and brought its 60-foot-long trunk to the city of Seattle. On the corner of Elliott and Broad Street, they built a greenhouse around it, a Sleeping Beauty coffin. On one level, the goal was to demonstrate how even a dead tree can become a life source for new growth. For the flourishing ferns, slugs, and fungus that would come to make this trunk their home. The trunk would become what's called a nurse log, nursing new life as it begins to grow. But on another level, it's all an elaborate illusion. Because this dead hemlock trunk, without the forest to support it, cannot be a nurse log so to replace the forest inside that greenhouse there is an army of humming humidifiers industrial aluminum ductwork, and a power guzzling water filtration climate control system a carefully curated terminal life support system it's not a nurse log it's hospice care hospice for a hemlock And on a deeper level, that is what the artist, Mark Dion, is driving at. He says, it's not exactly a feel-good work of art. You should look at this and get the impression of someone in the hospital, under an oxygen tent. He wants his art to make a statement that despite all our technology and money, when we destroy a natural system, it's virtually impossible to get it back again. This display is part of the Seattle Art Museum, and it's called the Newcomb Vivarium. Newcomb, the name of a generous donor, and vivarium, a term here meaning life enclosure. So picture a line of schoolchildren on a field trip walking the bustling city street, and they enter the enclosure, the vivarium, to view the decomposing log, masked with ferns, slugs, and fungus, kept alive by a whirring, wheezing, power-sucking life-support system. And it makes you wonder if the children might not have been better served by a field trip to a real forest. Because in a real forest, it would have become a real nurse log. Surrounded and supported by the creator's uncanny life springing up all around from the forest floor, the fallen tree would have participated in new life for 500 years. But on the corner of Elliott and Broad Street, it's not a nurse log. It's hospice for a hemlock. So Mark Dion, that artist I mentioned, who created the Newcomb Vivarium, he observed something in our way of life, something that poses a danger. So he was moved to create a scene that might preemptively cut us down a little. The same could be said for the inspired artist who crafted the rhetoric of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is traditionally attributed to the wise Jewish king, Solomon. Solomon has carefully reflected on his past life. He's observed himself and others hustling and bustling on crowded street corners, and he's concluded that humankind suffers from its own form of heart rot. Solomon believes that we are decaying from the inside out because he sees us trying to curate ourselves like little gods. But in truth, we are mortals in the hands of our creator. And so Solomon was inspired to chop us down before we collapse on our own. He uses two rhetorical tools to do the chopping. The first tool is the Hebrew word hevel, a word he uses over 30 times in the book, variously translated as vapor Vanity, absurdity, fleeting, fruitless, meaningless. The second tool is a phrase that is sometimes translated as chasing the wind or vexation of spirit or my favorite, shepherding the wind. 500 years ago, the great Bible scholar Martin Luther gave a series of lectures on the book of Ecclesiastes. Luther imagines an aged Solomon having gathered the wisdom of his lived experience, now gathers his friends and countrymen around him for something like an after-dinner speech. Luther believed that Solomon's purpose was not simply to cut us down to size. Luther believed Solomon's divinely inspired purpose was ultimately to put us at peace, to lay us to rest with his speech. Through Solomon... God wants to give us a quiet mind in the everyday business of this life so that we live contentedly in the present without care or yearning about the future, living by faith in God as God ultimately reveals himself through his son, Jesus Christ. But to get us there, to shepherd us toward faith, he must do some chopping first. So I invite you into Solomon's vivarium Step off the busy and bustling street for a moment and listen to the words of his speech recorded in the book of Ecclesiastes. The words of the speaker, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vapor, vapor, says the speaker, vapor of vapors, everything is vapor. Vapor. What does a person gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, yet the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to the place where it rises again. The wind blows to the south, turns and blows to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams came from, there they will return. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough seeing. The ear never has its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything about which one can say, Look, here is something new. This is something new. It was here already. Long ago it was here before our time. There is no remembering of the men of old. And even those who are yet to come, they will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the speaker, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I have set my heart to seek and to search out, by wisdom, all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business God has given the children of Adam to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and look, all of it is vapor, a shepherding of the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I had said to myself, I have attained great wisdom, surpassing all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience in wisdom and knowledge. And I have applied my heart to know wisdom, as well as madness and folly. Yet I perceived that this also was shepherding of the wind. Because with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But this also proved to be vapor. Laughter, I said, is folly. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried, I tried cheering myself with wine, embracing folly, my wisdom still guiding my mind. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for the children of Adam to do with the few days of their lives under heaven. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and filled them with all kinds of fruit trees. I made reservoirs for myself to water, groves of flourishing trees. I acquired servants, manservants and maidservants. There were servants who were born in my house. I owned more flocks and herds than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. I amassed gold and silver for myself, the treasures of provinces and kings. I got singers, choirs, both men and women, and a harem of mistresses as well, the delights of a man. And so I became greater in Jerusalem than anyone else before me, and in all this my wisdom remained with me. I did not deny myself anything my eyes desired. I refused no pleasure for my heart, because my heart took delight in all my toil because this was my reward for all my labor yet when i surveyed all that my hands had done and all that i had toiled to achieve look all of it was vapor shepherding of the wind hospice for a hemlock climate-controlled Hospice care for a hemlock rotting on a busy street corner is an artful absurdity. But commend that same tree to rest on the forest floor in the uncanny wisdom of its creator, and it will know abundant life. Picture an old, dying tree that's still standing. Only 5%? Of its trunk is still living tissue, 95% of it is dead where it stands. But when that tree falls to the forest floor into the capable hands of God, it has new life. Some people assume that the dead log itself is a life source, but that's not the case. Its power to nurse new life doesn't come from within, but from without. Water, bacteria, fungi transform it into a nurse log, a veritable garden of Eden, a glimpse of God's new creation. What you and I call life, when we say we're doing life, or when we talk about someone who's having a crisis of midlife or when I talk about what I hope to do with my life or you speak of your goals in life or your dreams in life or going on the journey of life, when you and I talk about life, what we're talking about is not yet true life. It's only mortal life. It's a glimpse of life. It's life curated and enclosed by death. And death is not natural for us. Death isn't a part of life. It's the opposite of life. Death is what has happened since we destroyed the system. Life-giving faith in God. Death is a consequence of us curating ourselves as gods. God, the true God, has graciously cut down our self-confidence so that we wouldn't fall away from him forever. To save us from hell... God temporarily gave us over to death. Genesis chapter 3 verse 19. And there's more. There's more because God sent his son to become a human, the heir of Solomon, the son of David, the true king in Jerusalem. God's son, Jesus, hung to die on a dead tree. Jesus carried the deadly consequence of our self-confidence. And then he rose from the dead. He broke through that absurd greenhouse glass so that you could let go of it. Let go of your isolated, enclosed, power-sucking, curated life. Let go and rest. Rest on the forest floor, surrounded and supported in the more than capable hands of your creator. Jesus is calling to you now. He says, I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but when it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, his mortal life, will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. John chapter 12, hating your life in this world means two things. First, escaping the vivarium, leaving that curated life enclosed by death. And second, resting in the hands of Jesus on the forest floor, surrounded on all sides by the uncanny, indestructible life of your creator. When Jesus returns one day, to set the world right. As the prophet says, you will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Isaiah 55. On that day, you will rise to true life, abundant life. And even now with Jesus... You can be like a nurse log with life that doesn't come from within, but from without from God's word of life who gives life as a gift as a nurse log. You can give others life, but you can't rely on your own strength. You can only fall into the arms of Jesus and receive the life he gives as a gift. So have no fear, little hemlock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And pray with me. Lord Jesus, sustain us by your word and your spirit in this mortal life. Give us your peace that surpasses all human understanding and striving. Make us grow and bear fruit like the Garden of Eden and the dawn of your new creation. Because you live and you reign with the Father and the same Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
0: You're listening to The Lutheran Hour. For free online resources, archived audio, our mobile app, and more, go to lutheranhour.org. Now back to our speaker, Dr. Michael Ziegler.
1: Thank you, Mark. I'm visiting today with Dr. Tim Seleska, He's a professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, and teaches about life with God as he's revealed himself in Jesus, and especially through the Old Testament. Thanks for joining us, Tim.
2: I'm very happy to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me back, actually.
1: Yes, yeah. We talked about Samuel, and now we get to talk about Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, And Ecclesiastes, it's a book unlike any other in the Bible. But for many Christians, it might be unfamiliar. They might not have read it it might be strange when they do read it or even unsettling. And I've heard you say that you've been unsettled by the book of Ecclesiastes. Why is that? First
2: of all, it's strange because many, if not all of the major themes that you see in the other Old Testament books, and certainly the New Testament books, are not there. So you do not see any talk of God's covenant with his people. You do not see any of uh, God's divine actions front and center, like in the Exodus or when you read the former prophets, you don't see anything about the workings of kings and prophets, the things that we're familiar with in the stories of the the Old Testament, and you certainly don't see anything like the kind of preaching you see in the prophets. So the major themes are not there. And that strikes a lot of people who are familiar with the rest of the scripture as strange. What do we do with a book like
1: this? Here's a simple question. Why is the book named Ecclesiastes? All right.
2: um, Good question. Uh, That comes actually from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word. So the Hebrew word at its very base is the Hebrew word kahal, which means to gather. So, kohelet, you can almost hear the is the noun that comes from that, kohelet. The Greek term for to gather is ekklesia. We know that as church, but, you know, in in, uh, secular Greek, it's an assembly of citizens. And an ecclesiastes is one who is a member of that assembly or a citizen. I do not think that translating it as the preacher really gets at who this person is in quite a— as well away as just Ecclesiastes or the Assembler or the Gatherer, which sounds strange, I know. So that's awkward and that doesn't work. But that's basically what the name is all about.
1: So as you said, the the big story of Scripture, that God's going to bless all the nations of the earth through Abraham and his family and the king that will come from that line, the Messiah, that's not there in the book. But it does speak maybe what life looks like outside of those promises, and, and therefore many modern readers can can relate to that. It also challenges modern beliefs, though, and even modern beliefs that Christians have come to hold. How, how does the book do that? So the thing about Ecclesiastes
2: is that God is very much there, but what you're dealing with is the hiddenness of God, God's hiddenness is the big issue or problem as I see it when I read Ecclesiastes. And if we get far enough, we can talk about the view or perspective that Ecclesiastes gives us in contrast to Job, for whom God's hiddenness is also a problem. But he experiences
1: God's hiddenness in a different way. So, for Job, the problem is God's hiddenness and suffering. Mm-hmm. For, for Ecclesiastes, the problem is... God's hiddenness
2: in? Job experiences, as you said, God's hiddenness as terrible suffering. What's the theological significance of his suffering? He doesn't give up belief in God, but he sees that God is angry at him. And you can read that throughout his book, throughout his words. He interprets his suffering theologically as God's wrath. Mm -hmm. Notice when you read Ecclesiastes, God's wrath is almost virtually absent from the book. So he experiences God's hiddenness, not as suffering. In fact, he's doing anything but suffering. He's very famous and rich, just like Job was, remember? Very rich, very prosperous. He's not suffering at all. He's on top of the world. But he experiences God's hiddenness as this sense of, what I'll say for lack of a better word, meaninglessness, absurdity in life.
1: As Christians, we are taught to look to God as one who intervenes, who answers prayers. And Ecclesiastes is confronting us with the fact that at least from our ability to perceive it with our eyes and our senses, it looks like God is is not involved or he's absent from.
2: When he looks at the world, he too perceives little in it which tells him of God. All he finds in it is contradictions which do not fit in with God. I mean, why should the uh, just people, the people who are, quotes, good people, suffer? Why do all the evil people prosper? That's mm-hmm. a contradiction. See, there's no predictable pattern. You can work hard all your life and um, something happens and you lose it all or whatever. See, there, there's no safe calculus between the way you live your life and the rewards that you'll get. It's overturned all the time. Yeah, he
1: says, I've I've seen a righteous person perishing yes. in their right. righteousness right. And, right. A, and a wicked right. person flourishing right. in their that's wickedness.
2: Right. <laughs> See, yeah, uh, yeah, the oppressors are always on top. No one hears the cry of those who are being oppressed.
1: So it doesn't make sense that if, if we believe in a wise, just, good, loving God set the world up, the world doesn't run like that's true.
2: So he describes a world that is enigmatic, discordant, and contradictory. It is the world in which we live. And I think that Ecclesiastes opens the eyes of a lot of Christians who may be very comfortable. We, you know, middle class, we're comfortable. We have a lot of money. We don't suffer from war. We don't suffer from hunger. If we get sick, we have access to doctors and medicine and all those kinds of things. We sometimes have huge blind spots about the real suffering in, in so much of the other world. And we're not mindful of the kind of uh, injustices that are built in
1: in so many ways that you can't escape. What's the unique job that Ecclesiastes does for us when you look at the whole word of Scripture?
2: So, Ecclesiastes serves to put me in this position of uncertainty uh, vis-a-vis my relationship with God, and that's why it has to be read within the context of Scripture because it drives you to ask the question, well, where do I find certainty? Because Ecclesiastes says again and again, just because you're righteous doesn't mean you're going to prosper. You know, that's the message that he keeps showing us, revealing. So what makes you think that's going to happen either in this life or in the
1: life to come? Okay. So as a Christian, we come at the book knowing the truth of the promises that God gives in Jesus. God so loved the world that he gave Jesus so that we might not perish, but be saved. And so Ecclesiastes is sort of like alerting us to the fact that the ship we're on is sinking and we need to let go of that ship so God can rescue us into something better. Yes. So
2: we are only going to find certainty when God actually has spoken to us and tells us something. So we go to where God has revealed his intentions for us, and that's quite outside of the framework of the law and in the uh, word that he has revealed to us in his Son, in the gospel. So, the gospel is outside of the law, and St. Paul makes that very clear when he says in in Romans 3, there is a righteousness that is not part of the law, the righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a whole different ballgame, and that's where we find our certainty.
1: Right. Thank you for joining us today taught by jesus and trusting in his promises we're bold to pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you peace.
0: Amen. This has been a presentation of Lutheran Hour Ministries.